Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. I'm your co-host, Ken Cameron, and I'm here with my colleague, Russell Stratton. Hi, nice to be back. Good to uh, speak to you again, Ken. And good to speak to you too, Russell, and good to be back with our listeners. We launched our first four podcasts uh, at the beginning of the month of January, and we had some good feedback from people, uh, I think, Russell. Yes, certainly. I think a number of people have enjoyed it, um, looking forward to uh, the next episodes. And we had some specific feedback that made us laugh, Ken. So uh, what was that? Yeah, one of a, a friend of a friend uh, passed on the thing, and a friend of a friend came back with some feedback that said that he, he liked the podcast, liked the banter, really liked the title, but he was a bit disappointed that Russell and I didn't cut loose with some profanity, given the title. So um, to that listener out there in the world, we have a message. F you! <laughs> like, what are you effing thinking? That we should just be effing all the time on the, on, on the airwaves here? And that people aren't going to effing mind? That's not the point of an effing podcast like this. We don't put up with that. None of that is 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 appropriate in this kind of a format. So we're just not going to effing swear like that. We're not going to give in or pander to the public. Are we, Russell? Uh, that That's true. And they can F off right away. I think our profanity filter might need to get put on a little bit, Ken. Otherwise, we might not get too far in our latest podcast uh, that we're putting today. I know, we get pulled in the airwaves. I think, so maybe, Russell, if we just allow ourselves to just use our natural potty mouths and not try to push it too hard, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that, shall we? For sure, that sounds good to me. All right. Well, this is the uh, first in what we hope to be an irregular series called Leadership Lessons from History, in which we're going to talk about some figures from history, and we're going to talk about some of their strengths, some of their failings, and lessons we can learn from them and apply to life generally, but hopefully also to the business world. And since this was your idea, Russell, we thought we'd kick off with me interviewing you about two figures that you admire from history. And I understand that you've selected two figures for us. I certainly have, Ken. Thank you. Um, and I picked both of them from my mother country across the Atlantic. So we have Winston Churchill and we have the Celtic Queen Boudicca. And so these are two figures from history that are uh, kind of at opposite ends of familiarity. There may be some that are more familiar with, say, Winston Churchill than they are with Boudicca. Is that the name that you that you mentioned? That, that's right, and only separated by uh, sort of nearly two thousand years. Other than that, so, uh, not very far. Much. Not very much. <laughs> no, no, that's no. right. And you know, I pride myself on being a bit of a history buff, and I confess that I know nothing about this Celtic queen. So I'm really looking forward to that. But why don't we start with the better known of these figures, Winston Churchill? And so uh, the little format that we've identified is a little bit of a biography and then some of the leadership lessons from them and then how we can apply it to the modern world. So why don't you kick us off with a little bit of a biography of Sir Winston Russell? Absolutely. Well, um, he's probably best known for the fact that he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom during World War II from 1940 to 1945, um, but then came back again as a sort of uh, comeback kid in 1951 to 1955 when he was Prime Minister again and was very much instrumental as a um, a mentor for the young Queen Elizabeth when she came to the throne after her uh, father had suddenly died. Um, Yes, Russell, I have been following a little bit. Um, My wife and I started listening or watching The Crown on Netflix, and Winston Churchill, beautifully played by uh, John Lithgow, is a character in that series. And he's he's quite old and doddering at the end of his life then, quite conservative and staunch in his perspective. So it'll be interesting to hear kind of what his life was like before that little snippet in Netflix. 
Netflix. So some of our listeners may be watching that show as well, uh, this being the first season of The Crown. So they may pick up on some of that. It'll be interesting for them to hear some of the, the, the incredible backstory of that figure. Well, absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things about him is that his earlier life, you know, he had such a, a sort of long career before he got to that point that people most remember him for, which was his wartime leadership role and then his sort of mentoring role as prime minister when the, um, the current Queen Elizabeth came to came to the throne. I mean, you know, he, he served in the military. He served at the uh, Battle of uh, Omdurman. He was also served during the Boer War in South Africa, was captured, was a prisoner of war, escaped. He wrote about his escapades. He then went on into Parliament when he, you know, flitted, he sort of jumped from one political party to another. So he was a Conservative, then he was a Liberal, then he was a Conservative again, then he was a Liberal. So, you know, he sort of um, jumped around a little bit. And although, as you said earlier, he was tends to be considered as a sort of Conservative character, certainly later in his life, was seen as a bit of a progressive earlier in his career. You know, was uh, served on the as the president of the Board of Trade, um, Home Secretary, championed prison reform and workers' social security, you know, which are more perhaps, you know, we tend to think of as more progressive ideas than some of his more conservative ideas later in his career. So we're going to have quite a breadth of, a, of an individual here. And if any of our listeners have the opportunity while they're listening to just Google young Winston Churchill, you'll come up with some pictures of him. And he was a very handsome and dashing young man. Nothing like the jowly bulldog with the cigar and the cane and the pot belly that we think of from the more stereotypical uh, photographs from World War II. Well, exactly. I think you see a picture of him in his hussar's uniform, you know, as a young man, and then you can start to see him going into, you know, into politics and he's sort of a long tail coat and top hat. And it gradually, as you start to see him get older to the figure that we're used to with the sort of bulldog neck and the big cigar and the V for victory sign and everything like that. Oh, so it was politics that did it to his body, yeah, to his health. Probably, so Probably, because, uh, I mean, one of the things there was with Churchill is, is he did like a drink. And a cigar. So, you know, champagne for breakfast and, you know, it was, you know, port and whiskey and all this type of stuff. So uh, I didn't look after himself that well from a physical perspective, I don't think. And, and wasn't he quite a literary figure? Like there's all sorts of quotes that are attributed to Churchill. Some probably um, are not, not even actually things that he said, but he, he's, he was apparently quite witty. And he's, he had, so he had all these quotes and he was a writer as well. Well, this, this is one you know, aspect of his career is, you know, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, wrote prodigiously. I mean, he you know, he wrote some, some his memoirs from his time as a uh, prisoner of war, but then went on as after his time as prime minister to write. I think you know, he was sent into many volumes of his, about his life, and he's one of those people that could probably justifiably write several volumes about his life. And then his quotes, I mean, there's the you know, ones that we perhaps most remember and, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches and, you know, uh, you know those, those wartime quotes. But then there were lots of very, you know, quite amusing quotes that he had and uh, sort of more inspirational quotes. In fact, so many that there are, you know, there is, I have at home, uh, you know, a book of Winston Churchill quotes and they're all ones that he said, but, you know, he's probably had more quotes than... 
uh, you know, most of us have probably put together in a, in a in a lifetime, and it's quite you know again interesting that you see he's I'll come back to later, but he's a, he's a great orator, and I think that that's what I'm sort of get to with him. He's a great orator, and some of those quotes there are either inspirational or or quite amusing when you find yourself smiling at some of the things that he says. But equally, you know, could have some quite inspirational quotes. I mean, just one that comes to mind for me is he said, you know, success is not final, failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I think that's so. You know, you see, probably the only person I can think, perhaps, who had as many quotes as him is somebody like Oscar Wilde, where you could just think about you know ones that are in the public sort of lexicon, where you know, at least a dozen quotes from both of those individuals that a lot of us can at least paraphrase, and I think that's yeah. often quite unusual. Well, you know, that's kind of a nice segue uh, in there. So why don't we start talking about what it is that you think made Winston Churchill a great leader? Okay, well, this, there's a number of things really that that that's kind of you. One was um, his single-mindedness, um, and linked to that, that he was a man of conviction. Now, that also came as a bit of a negative for him that we might touch on later on, but if we think about when he came to to become Prime Minister of Britain in 1940, we think about him as a wartime Prime Minister, which he was, but he wasn't Prime Minister at the beginning of the war. So when he came to to take up the role, um, and wasn't anybody's first choice. Didn't even George the Sixth, you know, particularly want or not Winston. But you know, nobody else wanted the job. I think that was where it came to. Britain was in a position where you know Germany had overtaken the the Low Countries, France, America's not in the war. Um, we're just about to have you know in between sort of Dunkirk evacuation and the Battle of Britain, and you know it's pretty pretty serious now. You, know, you and I went to see the film Dunkirk. We saw that very emotive sort of movie. But one of the things I think we need to remember is that we know the end of the story. You know, we know the end of the film. We know what happened. At the time in 1940, middle of 1940, nobody did. All they can see is there's seemingly this all-powerful, you know, sort of fascist regime who's just steamrolled through Europe. And the British government under Halifax is looking to sue for peace. Uh, but it was Churchill that you see in some of the cabinet papers that were released fairly recently, just sort of single-handedly in many ways, just saying, well, no, we're not We're not going to do that. He put it a lot more eloquently than that, but it was where you know, we're not going to negotiate with Mr. Hitler. We're not going to do this. We are going to continue the fight. And, and he sort of dragged the government round to that, you know, way of thinking that um, – Otherwise, the, you know, if, if he hadn't, the world would look very different to what it does today. You know, we, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation in English for a start. And a lot of the freedoms that we enjoy and the liberal democracies that we live in just wouldn't, wouldn't exist. So I think for that reason alone, he's, I am not going to give in to this. We are going to fight back uh, with something that would always put him on my mind predominantly as to why I would say he was a was a great leader. And you're not the only one in saying that. I believe you told me offline that Churchill was voted the the best Englishman or the best Briton. 
I, I think it was like, you know, the most popular Britain or something in one of these sort of surveys that's done periodically. Now, you know, I know that in more recent years with a bit of revisionist history, some people say, well, not everything about Churchill was great. There were certain things that decisions he made, maybe over the famine in Bombay or the bombing of Dresden during World War II, his views on imperialism, his views on race that were not what we in 2021 would say that's the you know that's the the, the acceptable way of thinking and so acknowledging that um and not diminishing it but also looking to say well if you then look that against what he achieved we might not even be able to have those conversations about what is acceptable and what isn't if he wasn't one of the people who'd actually literally stood there and said we're not going to give in to fascism because there are a lot of people that were prepared to say yeah, i'll wave the white flag and let's let's hope we can negotiate and he was like i think was his quote was like you, know, you don't negotiate with a tiger when your head is in its mouth mm-hmm. yes see again another one of those great witnesses <laughs> and that, that again, again, a great quote he would come on and and then i suppose when it came on one of the other reasons why he thought you know, what was it was his ability as an orator those wonderful quotes, his ability to, you know, gauge the public mood and then be able to put a speech together like the, um, you know, we'll fight them on the beaches and we'll never surrender. Even if you listen to it now, and I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't listened to it or not for some time, you know, go and pick it up on YouTube and listen to his to his speech in the House of uh, House of Commons and. For me, even you, know, you can sort of feel the hairs on the back of your neck start to 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 stick up when you think about the enormity of what he was saying at the time when he said it. In a similar way that you might hear one of Martin Luther King's you know speeches, and you think, "Wow, you know, just think about what he was saying at the time he was saying it." And it was similar there with with Churchill with that speech. So his ability to just say, "I know how to what to say, how to say it, how to do it, how to use language." for maximum impact um, that was going to get people thinking, oh, okay, perhaps we can do this. And I think, you know, that was a, a, a great sign from him. Okay, so Russell, to summarize, I think I've tracked three uh, things that you are, um, uh, three reasons why Winston Churchill could be considered a, a great leader, gives us great lessons from history. One was um, his willingness to step up at a time when no one else was. Uh, the second was his determination in the face of seemingly overwhelming odds and uh, continued over the course of like five years when things were were not always going well. And then the third was his skill as an orator and his ability to move others. Were those uh, a good summary of the three oh, reasons? Oh, yeah, why? absolutely, okay. Ken, yeah. All right. Now, let's also, one of the things we also wanted to talk about was we wanted to acknowledge that these are not always infallible figures. So let's look then for three things, if you can find them, of things that he that were weaknesses in his character. Uh, well, I think, I think I don't know if I was, I've picked out sort of three specifically, but I know one is the flip side of his single-mindedness. So the good thing is, yeah, he's a man of conviction, he's going to be single-minded in his approach in his uh, opposition to fascism. One of the problems I think he had there was that sometimes he um, thought he knew more than he did, so he would have a view on something and would then not move from it. So even if it wasn't such a good idea, he would still keep with it. So, for example, in World War One, when he was um, the Admiralty, he was very much uh, the architect or, or, or sort of driving force behind the Gallipoli campaign. Now, you know, People may know the Gallipoli campaign ended up for the Allies being unsuccessful, cost a lot of lives, but it was something that Churchill believed in 
and he's sort of you know reinforced failure with that in terms of his 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 view. Um, similarly, in terms of perhaps you know the famine in Bombay when he was you know that food had to be brought and sent to the you know uh, to Britain as fighting, but even though the local population were then starving, you know he would still have this sort of very single minded approach, which to be a strength on the one hand, but also could be a could be a negative, um, along with signs that you know. He, as my far, late father used to say, well, I think with Churchill was he'd never admit he was wrong, uh, and so yeah, that was that was the the, the, the probably the, the negative side that I would the main thing I would look from there was that he didn't always change those views when he perhaps needed to, and perhaps sort of embrace a different way of thinking. I like how you phrase that as kind of the flip side of his determination, right? So it's kind of the dark. Uh, his strengths and weaknesses are kind of the same thing to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. On, in the right, and I suppose it's contextual, and I think this is where it becomes interesting from a, a business perspective, that having total conviction in a way forward, even when other people are telling you it's not going to work and saying, no, this is the way we're going to go and getting people on board behind you and you know that sort of you know, vision and oratory skills is, is great. But there can be times when that, you know, if you're not ever listening to somebody else who might be saying to you, have you really got it right this time? Uh, that for every success, and there were many successes of, say, let's Churchill's approach, there were also times when it didn't work. And I think that's the thing. He wasn't infallible, as you mentioned earlier on. Um, and, you know, that is the flip side of it. it. It worked overall. If we hadn't have had that, would we be having the conversation today in the same way? Possibly not. Um, but there were also some uh, casualties along the way in terms of his approach when things didn't work out. And I think the term for uh, that, that trait that you're describing in social psychology is called the fallacy of sunk costs. The belief that you, if you've spent a certain amount of money in on a project, then you, you, and then you start to see some facts that maybe it's not working out. You tend to ignore those facts and favor instead the facts that support your existing belief because you've invested already in the project. You've sunk some costs, whether those costs are money or they could be time or it could be social capital. And, or in the case of Winston Churchill, it could be human lives. So if you've already invested a certain amount of, 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 of your, your capital, your social capital, or your cost, or your money, or your lives in these, into a project, and then it starts to not work out, people have a tendency to, instead of revising their opinion in the face of these facts, they tend to double down on their opinion because they can't bear to be wrong or they don't want to be proven to be wrong, or their ego starts to get in the way. And this can be something that often leaders can often struggle with. For example, as leaders, you're often, people ought to look to you for answers and being able to respond with, gee, I don't know, or being able to respond with, I was wrong and now we need to change course is often viewed as a sign of weakness. Absolutely, and I, and I think one of the other things you've got there is is, is with him is, and you see this with, with with leaders as well is they believe that they're right, and they don't believe they can ever be wrong. I mean, with a, another British leader, Margaret Thatcher, who can be probably more polarizing than Churchill, but you know, I may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. And I think there was a little bit of that with Churchill uh, that, and, and you can see that in the business world where people have success. And they know that overall their general direction is good and that their instincts are good. But they're never even prepared to have somebody else come up. They might not always be right all the time. 
and it, you still have pe- keep people around you who are have different viewpoints to you and are going to be prepared to tell you that you know I don't think you got it right this time. And I think you know we we talked about people like you know Abraham Lincoln keeping in a sort of political vein, where deliberately set out to have a cabinet around him of people that had different views to him. Whereas you see some others, I mean, most recently, probably our friend the Donald, south of the border, who sort of surround themselves only with people who think, yes, Donald, you're great and you know everything about everything. So you can sort of see a lot of leaders can have that potential problem. Some realise it and put steps in place to ensure that they don't fall foul of it, whereas others seem to just steamroll over it and think, well, no, I'm I'm just infallible. (laughs) Well, and your mention of uh, Margaret Thatcher gives us a nice segue into another female leader uh, that was your second choice. And I want to make sure that we save an equal portion of time, or at least a generous portion of time in our podcast to make sure that we talk about both figures. Um, so we have, a, we have a, your second choice was a female figure from 2000, almost 2000 years earlier. Tell us about this Queen Boudicca. Yeah, so, uh, so Boudicca was uh, uh, born, which would probably sort of just before the uh, Roman invasion of Britain in AD 43. She was a Celtic queen um, who led a revolt against the Roman rule in ancient Britain around about AD sort of 60, 61, something like that. I mean, obviously, as you can imagine, the um, the historical records for characters 2,000 years ago are a little, a little hazier, and really a lot of the only records that we have about her were written by the Romans. Um, but even the fact that she's still represented as such a strong, um, inspirational figure, I think, is testament to what she was able to do if her enemies even thought she was a strong, inspirational figure. So, yeah, just a... And in fact, one of the great quotes from history is that history is often written by the victors, and so they often tend to skew towards themselves. So just picking up on your point that if people, uh, if the Romans, the victors, were praising this woman's leadership skills, then she must in fact have been quite a leader. Yeah, and she and she originally started, you know, she was the the wife of the um king of the Iceni, and sort of AD sixty comes around, he dies, and the Romans basically annex his kingdom as they were starting to sort of take over um what was then you know ancient Britain, confiscated his family's lands, which obviously were then her family's lands and property, and by the story goes that in addition to all of this, she was publicly humiliated so they they flogged her so there she was you know whipped by roman soldiers and her two daughters were taken and raped in front of her so you know again we're back into the the time the you know the romans um you know ad 60 were not doing things the way that we would do here but we've seen this in warfare how people can be quite brutal and use um torture and rape as a as a terror um tool against their opposition and that's what they did with the idea that this would subjugate her and she would um then basically do what they said and let them let them take over well the problem is that for them not is that her response to that was basically f you and that would became a driving point for her in terms of then uniting the iceni and other British tribes in that area in sort of southeastern Britain against uh, to revolt against the Romans. And if you think about, you know, what, what happens, well, so she had been trained as a warrior, as a lot of Celtic women in those days were. They were trained as warriors um, 
as part of their upbringing, particularly if they were of no, more noble birth. Um, she led that rebellion. She had a degree of strategic and political understanding of what the situation was and what she needed to do, and basically went after three main Roman uh, settlements in Britain, which were um, Colchester, uh, the modern-day St Albans, and London, and sacked those cities and pretty much burnt them to the ground. So uh, if we think about one negative from her, probably about seventy to 80,000 people who were either Roman or British citizens who were sympathetic to the Roman cause uh, were put to the sword by her and her, her, and her followers. Um, and she came within one battle of basically kicking the Romans out of Britain at that time. Uh, she to a point there with those victories and another sort of guerrilla campaign had really got the Romans back on their heels, but she had one last battle, whereas in well, what typically had happened in that situation, that the Romans having people who were a very organised and structured and disciplined military force were up against a more um, guerrilla type of a flamboyant, a less control, centrally controlled force, and basically, when it came down to it, the American, the America, the uh, I don't say American, but it's similar. People think of it in a similar way that the American military power in um, more contemporary guerrilla sort of warfare, like sort of Vietnam and Iraq and play in Afghanistan, um, will, will will can't work if you continue your guerrilla tactics against it. But if you get into a set piece battle nearly one early always used, which is why it would have been mighty in contemporary uh, warfare often those groups will avoid a set-piece battle because they can't match the firepower. The same thing where they went head-to-head with the Romans across a field and lost. Um, Rumour has it that she was either killed or she took poison to kill herself and the Roman uh, then Romans occupied Britain until uh, 410 AD. But... Okay. She is still celebrated as a national heroine for her, uh, it's maybe slightly romanticised, stand against an oppressive invader. And, you know, the fact that she's still remembered and recognised only 2,000 years later, uh, yeah, I suppose is testament to that. So then the two or three lessons we can take from her story that we can apply to our private or business lives are what, Russell? Well, well interestingly, there's, there's a quite a similarity to Churchill in a way here. There was a single-mindedness. Um, there was a an inspiration. I mean, you remember this is this is a woman in, 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 in an age when perhaps, you know, male figures who had martial prowess would tend to be those that people would look to. So perhaps similar to another, you know, English queen many years later, Queen Elizabeth I, not being, um, having any, she couldn't list the number of battles that she'd won, but was still able to identify um, a message that was going to uh, resonate with the chieftains of the other tribes that they would be prepared not just to follow her, but to have her lead them. So not just say, yeah, my forces will join with yours, but to say, and I'm happy for you to be in command. So, you know, that that's quite a feat as well. And I think the other thing for me I was impressed in terms as, as a, a leader was um, 
that sort of resistance to in, injustice, not just personally what had happened to her, but to what she saw with her people when she wasn't going to effing stand for it, you know, uh, similar to Churchill in this way. You, you know, you've done this and my back's against the wall. And probably even more so than Churchill, she knew that if she lost, if she was dead. And so were her pe- so were her people. They, you know, the Romans weren't a sort of forgiving let's let's sort of sit down and have a conversation about how we can you know broker the peace. It was basically they would, you know, butcher, <laughs> you know, one in ten. The idea of decimate comes from the Romans of saying we're gonna take we're gonna execute one in ten people, you know, wasn't unusual for them to do that. So uh, it was a violent times and the stakes were incredibly high, but she was prepared to resist what she perceived to be injustice in the way that her people were being treated. And I suppose the third similarity between Churchill and Queen Boudicca was this the ability to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Or perhaps what you hinted at earlier was the unwillingness to accept defeat and to take it instead as a as a learning lesson and move forward from there. Yeah, and I, I think I think so in, to, to a certain degree. I mean, if you think about you know the the the, the Nazi war machine, and it carried everything before it. The Roman war machine and the way it carried everything before it. You know, both of them were prepared to stand up and seemingly when there was no chance and lead a fight back. One was successful, and partially because they had support from other allies. Um, one who who wasn't who came up short. You know, perhaps in a sporting, you know, they had the great comeback, but they just couldn't get that final touchdown or that final goal that was going to take them over the line. And so there was that glorious, you know, uh, you know, effort, but it just, it just, it just fell short. Um, there is, there is one other thing I wanted to just address there, Ken. That I think is interesting about both of them that shows a human side to them um, that we sometimes forget. Both of them overcame personal tr- problems. You know, Churchill used to speak about the black, the black dog. He was a man who suffered from depression. He had some serious mental health challenges throughout his whole life. And you can imagine, you know, he was dealing with that. And I think perhaps that may have contributed towards some of his sort of self-medicating through through alcohol. But you know, you can imagine he's leading Britain through. The, certainly that part of World War II before America came in, before Russia came in on, on the Allied side, while still dealing with depression. You know, Boudicca had overcome incredible personal trauma in terms of the treatment, the physical treatment around me, you know, her husband dying, her property being taken away, her being uh, whipped, her daughters being raped in front of her. So both seemed to use that as a sort of driving force, but were both having to manage that mental trauma at time of already being in a, 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 a from a business sense, in a time of intense stress anyway. So I think that's to both their credit that they both managed to do that, putting aside their personal demons while still being able to deliver the goods um, when it was needed. And, you know, and I wonder, Russell, the extent to which one puts aside one's personal demons or the extent to which you incorporate your personal demons and let them drive you through to the success. Because I can kind of see that elements of that in both of these two individuals' stories as well, that they became a driving force. 
it could well be. I mean, it may. We don't know. Certainly, with Boudicca, enough what 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 that was like. But I, you know, I think yes, there was a part of perhaps it's not sort of so. Well, I'll put it to one side for the moment. And what I'm thinking of there is that obviously the 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 uh, the angst, the anxiety caused by that, or the stress caused by that, is what's being put to one side. But they're then taking that as a total drive to there. There is there's, there is no alternative other than victory. There is nothing right. else. We just have right. to go. So cool. I think that was probably what it was. Uh, I found was interesting between the two of them. Thank you for that, Russell. I found today's conversation around uh, lessons from history to be really fascinating. And especially, I've always admired and been engaged by your knowledge of history and especially those pieces of history that I don't already know about. So thanks for sharing uh, uh, detailed about a figure that I thought I knew and then also a history about a character that I didn't know anything about. So I hope that our listeners found some of that uh, interesting today and were able to kind of uh, follow some of those lessons and apply them to our own individual business lives. That was great. Thanks, Ken. And I think it was also nice to feel to talk about somebody that some most people know of and then somebody that perhaps a lot of people haven't heard of. So uh, um, I, I enjoyed it. So I hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. Well, I'll have to spend a whole bunch of time on Wikipedia over the next month so that when we do our next uh, segment here on Leadership Lessons from History, I'll have something to be able to contribute uh, that can be half as fascinating as what you shared to us today, Well, Russell. the roles will be reversed, Ken, and I'm, I'm effing content, confident in you that you're going to come up with something. So, uh, Well, then the pressure's effing on. <laughs> Ken, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us today. And don't forget to look us up and subscribe on your favorite podcast deliverer of choice, whether that's Spotify, or Apple Podcasts or any other podcast so that you can get notified when the new episodes are available. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.